Well, let's get started. So I'm going to, again, I will read uh, verses 1 through 11. Our focus this morning will be verses 9 through 11. So we'll be finishing this section in Romans 8. So Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as though it was, through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So as I said last time, we looked at Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And in that passage, uh, like I said, it's part of this larger section of verses 1 through 11, in which Paul now is examining Life in the Spirit, or how the Holy Spirit empowers us to live the Christian life. Because as we saw from Romans 7, he, he uh, mourns the fact, he, he bewails the fact that he is caught in this constant battle of sin, struggling with sin in his body. And he says at the end, who will save me from this body of death? It is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then he gets into this section here about life in the spirit. So this is the answer uh, to the question of our struggle with indwelling sin. So how can the Christian emerge victorious in his or her battle with sin in the flesh? The answer is found in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, we saw last week three things. First, we saw how living or existing according to either the flesh or the spirit is sort of like a whole head, heart, and hands kind of a thing. It it incorporates and and sort of encapsulates all of your activity, your thinking, your feelings, your believings, and your actions, which is why Paul uses several metaphors. He says if you... Uh, walk according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, if you set your minds on the things of the flesh. It is a whole person, head, uh, heart, and hands kind of a thing. So we exist in either one of two opposite spheres, one of two opposite realms, if you will, the flesh or the spirit. And again, so pervasive are these spheres of existence that they permeate their way into our very uh, modes of thinking. So the idea of setting your mind on things of the flesh or setting your mind on things of the spirit. And we also saw that a fleshly mindset results in death. So the mindset on the, uh, the flesh is death 
And then the, uh, a spiritual mindset leads to life and peace. And then finally, we saw the hostility and inability of the fleshly mind. So the person who sets their mind in the flesh says is hostile to God. And we looked at that because they, they in their hearts, they reject the truth that is evident to them in nature, that is evident to them in their own conscience. They reject that truth. They, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppress it in unrighteousness. So they're hostile to God. It is a mind that is at war with God. It is also a mind that is uh, that does not obey God. It is a mind that is in rebellion to God. So they they actively act in rebellion against the commands of God. And then we finally found out also the inability. It is also a mind that cannot obey God. So that is the recap from last week. Now, as we're going to get into these verses here, 9 through 11, before we do so, I want to say a few uh, words on the role of the Holy Spirit in our, uh, in our salvation. Because we've been talking about life in the Spirit, but I think before we go on, it's important to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, we see mention of the Holy Spirit or through his various other titles, the Spirit of God, or as we see here in this passage, the Spirit of Christ, or sometimes just the Spirit. We see this all throughout Scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, it is the, the mention of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is a little less frequent and a little more vague in, in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, it's just referred to as the Spirit of God. You see this in Genesis 1 after God, you know, after the first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, it says, in the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, over the face of the earth. So there, that is the, you know, that's the Holy Spirit. I mean, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2, but it does say the Spirit of God. And we see that he's taking a role in creation there. Now, as we get to the New Testament, it becomes much more clear and much more frequent. The mention of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Trinity becomes a little more evident as we get to the New Testament, as more uh, explicit mentions are there of the test uh, of the Trinity in the New Testament. In fact, you know, one of the clearest examples of it is you see it at the baptism of Jesus. So you see the, you know, the incarnate son of God, the second person who is the one is being baptized. You, you hear a voice from heaven. It is the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you see the spirit of God descending in the form of a dove upon uh, Jesus Christ as he's being Baptized, So you see all three persons there at that event. But there are really two places in the New Testament that, that give us the bulk of our teaching on the Holy Spirit. Not all of it, but the, the vast majority of it. And the first place is in John chapters 14 through 16 in the Gospel of John. That's the upper room discourse where he talks about the helper. He talks about the the, the, the one that will be sent by him and the Father, the one who will bring to knowledge everything I have taught you, who will be with you in the world. He is the other helper. The second place where you see the biggest bulk of teaching on the Holy Spirit is right here in Romans chapter 8. Now we know and we confess that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, that he is fully divine, that he is personal, so we can call him a he, not an it, this is not Star Wars. We're not talking about the force. May the force be with you. 
doesn't have any effect or any application in the New Testament because the Holy Spirit is not the force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And if you're curious, you could see in our confessional documents, the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 11 talks about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, question 53 also talks about the Holy Spirit. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit is sort of like the, the Ringo star of the Trinity. Okay? I mean, he's, he's barely mentioned and, and usually forgotten. Okay, we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason is because the Holy Spirit's function is to point to Jesus Christ, is to point to the Son. It is not to draw attention upon himself. It is to, to point to the, to the Son and to apply the work of the Son in our lives. So the Holy Spirit's primary goal in the life of the believer is to apply the finished work of Christ to us. Now, the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, of course, is, equal, is an equal partner. And I hesitate to even use that word partner because it's not the most precise language. But is an equal partner both in creation and in new creation. So we see all three members of the Trinity in creation. We see all three members of the Trinity working in new creation. When we consider creation, we could say... Safely, I believe, that is the Father who planned and ordained the creation. He is the one who, who sets, you know, who ordains all things that shall come to pass, and he ordains to create. It is the Son who is the agent, the Word. God speaks through the Word, and it is the Word through whom all things are created. So the Son is the agent, or the one through whom all things came into being. But the Holy Spirit, as we looked at a little bit earlier in Roman, or Genesis 1-2, is the one who sort of oversees and superintends the creation. So he's there hovering over the face of the waters and, and overseeing these things. Now when it comes to new creation, or redemption, or salvation, we see that it is the Father who chooses and elects. The Father chooses and elects those who will be saved. And then the Son Goes, comes into the world to redeem those whom the Father chose and elected. And then the Holy Spirit, as we said, applies that work of redemption into the hearts of the ones whom Christ had purchased with his redemption, which are also the ones whom the Father has chosen and elected. Now, all of the benefits of salvation that are applied to us by the Holy Spirit, here's just a list of Seven that came to mind as I was writing this down. The Holy Spirit brings regeneration. So when we talk about the new birth, when we looked at that uh, some uh, weeks ago in John chapter 3, when we preached on that, the new birth, uh, the being born again, it is the Holy Spirit who brings that new birth into us. It is the Holy Spirit who comes into us and makes us alive again in Christ. As we will see uh, probably next week, it is the Holy Spirit who then adopts us into the family of God. He is the one who makes us children of God and adopts us into the family of God. It is the Holy Spirit who calls us irresistibly through the word and the preaching of the gospel. So that call, the Holy Spirit will then use that to call those whom the Father has chosen into the flock, as it were. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts so that we can be justified. 
So when we hear that gospel call, then the Holy Spirit works faith into us. And then we accept the gospel call. We believe what is put forth to us in the gospel. And then we respond by faith. As we've been looking at so far in Romans 6 and 7, as we'll see also in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He is the one who dwells in us, who makes us holy, who conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who preserves us. So when we talk about perseverance of the saints, it is not by our own efforts that we persevere in the faith. It is because the Holy Spirit preserves us firm in that faith. And then finally, number seven, the Holy Spirit glorifies us. On, the, on that last day when Christ returns, the Holy Spirit will bring us back to life and our, we'll, we will be mystically and magically changed or, or you know, supernaturally changed into our glorified bodies. But as we see here in Romans 8, it is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us who then sanctifies us. So we can be called saints. Not like in the Roman Catholic way of being a saint where you've worked three works of, you know, miraculous works and you lived a, a, you know, a completely holy life or whatever. But saints in the sense that we are called out, we are set apart, we are sanctified by the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes us saints. We're holy. We're set apart again because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. If you remember, I'm trying to remember when I said it, but. When we talked about the uh, God appearing to Moses on Mount Horeb in the burning bush episode, and he tells Moses to remove your sandals from upon your feet because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And we said the ground is holy not because the ground was anything special. Mount Horeb is just another mountain in, in the Middle East area there. It's holy because God was there. That is why the ground was holy. And we are holy because God dwells in us, not because we're special but because God dwells in us. And we're sanctified because the Holy Spirit then is working in and through us, through the word then, as we said, to conform us or to change us or to make us into the image of the Son. So you can say, in effect, that the Holy Spirit is making us into little Jesuses. Okay? I mean, not, not in an, idolic, in a, you know, in a, an idolatrous kind of way, but... We are being conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what God wants. He wants his image to be propagated to, you know, we bear the image of God. And, you know, the idea of being fruitful and multiplying is spreading the image of God throughout all creation. And Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. And we are then being conformed into that image. So now as we come now to Romans 8, 9 through 11, we're going to conclude this little mini series or such that we've been going through in life, in the spirit here, this main first main section of Romans 8. The first thing I want to see here in verse 9 is that we are in the spirit. That's what Paul is going to get at in this verse. We are in the spirit. And he picks up right here in verse 9 where he left off in verse 8 where he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. So this, however, is, is a contrast. You know, he said something in verse eight and then he says, well, you know, this is what this is the case here. You cannot please God if you're in the flesh. However, you are not in the flesh. That's the point he's trying to make here. He's making a pivot now. He's like, 
All these bad things about the people who walk according to the flesh, who set their minds according to the things of the flesh, who live in that sphere of the flesh, this is what happens to them. But you, the people to whom I'm writing, are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. But he says, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So he has, like I said, he's just spent four verses, verses five, uh, five through eight, highlighting the problems of walking, thinking, and living according to the flesh. How this mindset leads to death. How the fleshly minded person is hostile to God. And how the fleshly minded person cannot please God. But then, he, like I said, he brings these words of comfort. You are not in the flesh. You to whom I am writing are not in the flesh. You no longer exist in that sphere. You are no longer citizens of this age. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And you are no longer under the dominion of the flesh, but you are now under grace. Again, remember, Paul is writing, as we saw way back in Romans 1, verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. So he's writing to a group of people who are beloved of God. He's writing to a group of people who are called out of the world to be saints. So he knows, in a sense, that he is talking not to people who are living according to the flesh anymore, but who are in the spirit. And the contrast here between believers and non-believers couldn't be more clear. Unbelievers are in the flesh. Unbelievers are living according to this age. Unbelievers are hostile to God, but believers are in the spirit. They are partakers of the age to come. They are uh, under grace, no longer under law. And the reason believers are in the Spirit is because the Spirit of God dwells in them. Now, that may sound like an obvious statement, right? You're in the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in you. You Now, sometimes we need to hear the obvious statements from time to time, right? Now, that word, whoops, that word dwell or dwells, Oikeo comes from the word oikos, which is not a sound that pigs make, but it's the sound for, it's the word for house or home. So if you think of the word economic, that is, comes out of that, it comes out of the Greek oikonamos, which is the law of the home. So economics is, you know, in, in its most broad sense, the law of the home or the law of living, which is why when you, you know, if you, you go way back in school and you took home economics classes in school. That's, that's kind of what it's going at. So that word just means house, home, and then the verb form means to inhabit or dwell. And it occurs eight times in the New Testament in Paul, all of it in Paul's writings. Now, if you remember when we were going through John, and John likes to use that word abide a lot, abide, 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 and it's the word meno. It means to kind of... You come up to a point, you just kind of stay there. You just plant your your feet, your ground, and you you don't move. You remain, you abide there. That's John's favorite word. Paul's word is oikeo, which is to inhabit, to dwell. Now, Paul uses it twice in Romans 7 to, to refer to sin dwelling in us. And then he uses it three times in Romans 8 to describe the spirit dwelling in us. And it's the idea of the of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, sort of like dwelling in His own home. It's like what you know, you dwell, when you come home after a long trip, you come and you you dwell in your home. You're like, oh, I'm home. You know, I could sit here, I can rest. This is my home. I feel comfortable here. 
Uh, this is this is good. This is this is the this is the life. That's what this, the word means. And the spirit then sort of comes into the believer and just like, okay, now we can get to work. Now we can start sanctifying you. Now we can sort of get to the work about turning you to the image of Christ. But I'm home now. I, I'm where I belong. And when Paul says, if indeed the spirit dwells in you, that if indeed is meant to indicate a question to which the answer is expected to be positive. So he's not calling it a question that the spirit dwells in you. He's saying, surely the spirit dwells in you. That's why you are not according to the flesh, because surely the spirit dwells in you. And the point Paul is making here is quite clear. We are in the spirit if the spirit is in us. We are in the sphere of the spirit if the spirit is at home in our hearts. Now, we've talked about this before in other series and other lessons and stuff, but in its most basic sense, when we look at it from an earthly perspective, where does God dwell? The temple was God's home. Okay, it was a house for God. When when David wanted to establish a temple in Jerusalem, and, and uh, the prophet Nathan says, you want to build me a house? It's like, I haven't had a house for 400 years. I dwelt in a tent and I moved around in a tent. And he says, and don't worry, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. But your son will build a house for me. But the temple is uh, God's dwelling place here on earth. And, and the temple in the Old Testament represented God's presence among his people. Now, when we get Jesus... He is the fulfillment of the temple, and he is then not God just among us in a kind of a symbolic way, but he is God with us in a human way. Emmanuel, great name for a church. Emmanuel, God with us. But then we're also temples. We are also temples because God is at home in us. He dwells in us. Two verses from 1 Corinthians talk about how believers themselves are also temples. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That is why you are a temple, because God dwells in you. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, or do you not? It's amazing how both these verses, Paul is like asking you questions. Don't you know this already? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So both cases, in both cases, he is chiding believers for their behavior. They're not living like Christians. And in both times, he's like, don't you know that you are a temple of God because God's spirit dwells in you? And then the obvious rejoinder is, and now start acting like it. That's the point he's making. But he is making that point based on the truth that you are a temple because God dwells in you. Now, when you take some time to think about it, what goes on in the temple? Well, one thing, it was the place where sins were atoned for. So all the sacrifices were performed in the temple to atone for your sins. But secondly, it was, it was a place where the people communed with God. So if you brought your Thanksgiving offering to the temple, you would sit there and the priest would prepare it. He would slay the offering and then part of it you would sit there and you would eat it in the temple grounds. It's sort of like a way of eating a meal with God in a sense. 
And now that we are temples, dwelling places for God and the Holy Spirit, those two functions still apply. Not that we are having sins atoned in us, but the idea is that the Holy Spirit is living in us and working in us to eradicate sin in our lives. And also, he is communing with us in ways that we will see a little more clearly as we get a little further in Romans chapter 8. Now, if we are in the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in us, then the opposite is also true, which is what Paul says here in verse 9 again of Romans 8, where he says, If anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to him. Now, Paul is talking about someone having or not having the Spirit. How do we know whether or not we or anyone has the Spirit? Jesus says in Luke 6, 43 and 44 for no good tree which produces fruit right bad fruit uh, so there, there's no good tree which produces bad fruit nor on the other hand a bad tree which, which produces good fruit for each tree is known by its fruit for men do not gather figs from thorns nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush the idea being is you can tell a Christian or you could tell one who has the spirit dwelling in them by the fruit they bear in their life, which is obedience, which is a love and desire for God, all those things. The most, uh, I guess, general description of the fruit of the Spirit you would see in Galatians 5, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, it's not like there's nine fruits. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which manifests itself in these many, many ways. But the only way to know if you are a good tree or a bad tree is to examine the fruit in your life. Now, is this something we can discern infallibly? Can I look at somebody and infallibly say, you are a Christian, I see fruit in your... No, you can't discern this infallibly. But you, if you can see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, even if it's just a few small, wrinkly little grapes on the vine there, you know, just a few sad, sorry grapes, you know, it's still fruit, right? It is still fruit. Then the Spirit dwells in you. And of course, this all goes to the heart of the question of assurance. And we'll get more into this later in Romans 8. But we know that the Scripture speaks of people who have a false assurance. So people who think they're Christians when they're not really Christians, or think that they're in the Spirit when they're not really in the Spirit. These are people who on the last day will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there are going to be people on the last day. There are people, just like there are people throughout any period in, it, uh, in the history of the church that think they're Christians, but are not really. And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. The idea here again, remember, if you do not have the spirit, you do not belong to him. Now moving on to verse 10. The spirit is life. So what we just said concerning the spirit of Christ in verse 9 also applies here in verse 10, where we see, if Christ is in you, so... The Holy Spirit dwells in you, but now we're saying, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So, yeah, again, Paul says, if Christ is in you, again, because of the mystery of the Trinity 
and the fact that both the Son and the Holy Spirit are equally God, in a sense, you can say Christ is in you. Now, the reason why you can say Christ is in you is because what the Holy Spirit is doing, like we said earlier, he is applying the work of Christ in your life. So he is, he is applying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life as a believer. Paul says this in other places, Christ in you. Galatians 2.20, this is a great verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in Colossians 1.27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, this is just all part and parcel of life in the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, as I said, dwelling in us and applying the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in us daily. So then what are the results then of Christ being in us? Well, Paul answers that though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, if you're using different translations, you may see the spirit is life. But the first thing to note is that the body is dead because of sin. And again, this is something that we've been running across all throughout Romans chapter 6 through 8. The law cannot produce in us the righteousness God requires because it was weakened through the flesh. That's Romans 8, 3. Paul said nothing good dwells in his flesh, Romans 7, 18. And now while body and flesh, they're two different words, both in English and the Greek, which is why you've got two different words. Though, there's, though they're not equal, they're not, you can't say that they're completely equal. There is a large degree of overlap between body and flesh. Okay? And in a sense, these terms are sometimes even used synonymously. But the flesh here speaks to things of this age, and the body can also be used than to indicate the entire person who is subject to this age. And the point here, what Paul is saying, is though the body is dead, is that sin has rendered us dead. It has rendered us weak. It has rendered us incapable of pleasing God. The body is dead. It is fleshly. It is part of this age. But, favorite word. Trying to remember, what was my second favorite word? I think it was or, and then third was yet. <laughs> or was it yet, then or? I don't remember, but but is the first favorite word. The spirit is life, or the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, like I said, now if you have New King James, or maybe ESV does this too, you'll see the spirit capitalized. That is an interpretive decision made by the translators. Okay, because... The Greek New Testament does not capitalize any words unless they're at the, the beginning of a sentence or if they're, it's, it's a, a name like Paul or Jesus. Those will be capitalized. So there's no capitalization in the Greek. So we don't know if spirit here, the word is pneuma, which you get pneumatic or pneumonia from. Uh, it just means wind or breath or spirit. And we don't know if that word here, spirit, is Holy Spirit, spirit, or if it is 
like spirit as opposed to our body spirit, like the immaterial part of us. We don't know because the word is not capitalized in the Greek. Now, as I said, I said the spirit is alive because of righteousness, and my Bible has a small s. You have the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's capital S spirit. So the interpreters are, in each translation, are making a decision. One thinks it's our spirit, like our immaterial body part. Others are thinking it's the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Well, there are valid reasons to support either interpretation. So if we say spirit, sort of like in a human anthropological sense, like our immaterial part, Paul appears to be contrasting the believer's body and the believer's spirit, where he says the body is dead, but the spirit is alive. Uh, Now, in in support of the spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, Paul has used that word, spirit, in Romans 8, almost exclusively to refer to the Holy Spirit. And then if you also look at the Greek, literally, the the phrase says the spirit life. So they sort of supply the the connecting verb is there. That's that's a valid thing to do. So the the text literally does say the spirit is life. So if you've got the New King James or anything that says the spirit is life, that's proper. That is actually the correct or more literal translation. And it's not the spirit is alive. And also because Paul's theology has a redemptive historical flavor to it. So the idea of history is telling you the story of redemption from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is one story. And Paul's theology is very focused on this two-age paradigm of this age, the age to come, flesh, spirit, all these things. This is very much in Paul's mind and his thinking, the already and the not yet. So as such, I am inclined to see spirit here as the Holy Spirit. So if you've got spirit as life, that is my vote. (laughs) Okay, that is my vote for what it should be. Now the point of saying all this, and if this were a sermon, I would never add all this in the sermon, but because this is a Sunday school lesson, I'm going to add this in here. So if your brain is hurting, I apologize. (laughs) My brain was hurting as well looking at this. But the point, the, the cash value for all of this is that where the body is dead, the spirit is life. The spirit brings life into the dead. That's the point of all of this. The indwelling Holy Spirit makes us alive, brings life to us where we were once dead. This is the work of new creation in us and gives us life. This is to make us new people in Christ. And the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Again, another hard phrase to interpret because whenever you see righteousness, it's not always clear if the Bible is talking about the righteousness that we get through faith, imputed righteousness, or if it means practical righteousness, the righteousness that we do in our life, the the obedience that we give in our life. Now the Spirit of life dwells in us And as we learned a couple of weeks back in Romans 8, 4, therefore, we can now live lives of righteousness. Verse 4 tells us that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. 
The idea is because we walk according to the Spirit, we are now fulfilling the requirements of the law. So here I'm inclined to think of practical righteousness. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that can also be translated for the sake of righteousness. Finally, verse 11. The Spirit makes alive. So as we come to the end of this section, Paul hints at some of the great things that will be coming later in the chapter, in verse 11, where he says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, Romans 8.11 begins with that word, but, which is my favorite word, but it's also to, meant to draw a contrast to what he has just said. So he says, though the body is dead because of sin, that's the contrasting phrase. Again, our physical bodies are relics of this age. Uh, because of sin, our bodies are weak. They are corrupt. They are decaying. In a word, they are dead. <laughs> the, the body is dead because of sin. But... We see that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies as well. So because your body is dead because of sin, the spirit dwells in you. He is going to give you life because he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He's going to give life to your mortal bodies. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because that's the middle part of verse 11. The the verse itself is structured in an if-then kind of way, so a conditional statement. And the condition is the indwelling Holy Spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And it's wonderful because in that little phrase, you've got all three persons of of the Trinity there. The spirit of him is the Holy Spirit. The him is the father. And of course, Christ Jesus from the dead is the son. And God the Father raised the incarnate Son, Jesus, from the dead. We see that in Acts 2.24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And now the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus, that same Spirit now dwells in you, and it dwells in me. So the Spirit, that, the Spirit of God who brought Jesus from the dead now is in us. And he will give life to our mortal bodies. God is the source and the giver of life. Paul, and when he's preaching to the people on the Areopagus in Athens, says to them, actually quoting one of their own philosophers, he says, for in him, and he's using that to refer to God, in him we live and move and exist. It is because God is the giver of life. That is why we live and move and have our being. In John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. God is the source. God is the giver of life. And that phrase mortal bodies is just a way to say that it's a body that is subject to death. It is a body that is subject to the, the, the effects of this world. God will give to our lowly, corrupt, weak, fleshly bodies true life, spiritual life, everlasting life. And all of this, of course, is based on the fact because Jesus, or because the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't a parlor trick 
that God decided to do on a Sunday morning. Like, okay, you know, here we are, poof, you know, and Jesus rises from the dead. Now for my next trick, I'm going to... No, it was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a glorious end times harvest of souls that we will see when Christ returns that marks the age to come. I know we're running out of time, but flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, please. But in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to start reading in verse 20. Paul says here, this is talking about the resurrection. He says in verse 20, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead, so the resurrection. The first fruits of those who are asleep, those who are currently dead. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, hands the kingdom of God, uh, and uh, to, uh, he hands the kingdom to the God and Father, uh, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is meant to, to mark an end to the reign of death. He is the last enemy to be defeated. He is the one who is crushed. And then Christ is the first fruits of a glorious end times harvest that will come when he returns. And all of this, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15, but going back to uh, Romans 8, 11, Finally, all of this is through the agency of the spirit. It says through his spirit who dwells in you. So not only does the Holy Spirit make us alive in our spirits and take us from the spirit of the flesh into the sphere of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will also give life to our mortal bodies. And this speaks of glorification. Glorification. If you have your finger still in 1 Corinthians 15, go back there and then in verse 42 of that chapter, it's a great chapter. This might be on that Mount Rushmore chapters as well. 42, Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. This is talking about um, what happens at the resurrection. The body, our bodies, is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The idea here is that the resurrection when he gives life to our mortal bodies, when Christ returns, that body is going to be raised imperishable, is going to be raised in glory, is going to be raised in power, is going to be raised spiritual. Now, Paul will talk more about our glorification later in Romans 8, starting in verse 18 and following. But that's where we are here now at the end of verse 11. So we'll stop here, uh, and then next week, the 31st, uh, we'll continue looking at Romans 8. This time we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 as we consider another benefit of the Holy Spirit that he brings into our lives, the benefit of adoption.